So um, after the... Oh, hold on. That's you, isn't that's, it? That's me. That's me, isn't well, it? Well, it yeah. doesn't say you. How am I supposed to know? I don't do this every week. I'm being like Piers Morgan. I'm keeping you in suspense. It's Friday, December the 1st, and this is the Dutch News Podcast, your weekly chance to catch up with what's been going on here in the Netherlands. I'm Gordon Darach, Dutch News Contributing Editor and Bootleg Bauble Merchant, and I'm joined today not by Paul, he's off in Portugal, but by Shania Bostas, who's been covering the elections for Dutch News and sundry more reputable outlets, including The Guardian and The Spectator. Shen, welcome. Uh, very good to have you on. Um, what's been the highlight of your week so far? COVID, I suppose. Yes, <laughs> you, you can you can just call me uh, Plague Mary. Right. Okay. Uh, both uh, as a victim and as a uh, and, and, and as an impromptu uh, impromptu nurse. Yes, exactly. Yeah, everyone's <laughs> everyone's come down with it. It's like yeah. we've all we've all caught the lurgy from the election results last week. Yeah, but I thought COVID was over. And everything was fine and we didn't need to worry about it anymore. I don't even know what you're supposed to do now. You just stay away from people if you're feeling rubbish, right? That's the thing. You don't, have you got any of those tests still? I had to go get some. Did you manage to find some? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're on special oh, yeah. offer in ATOS at the moment for anyone who's feeling a bit sick. <laughs> right. So there's a handy tip. Uh, go to ATOS for your COVID tests. And why are you a bootleg bauble merchant. Gordon. Oh yeah, I just wanted to squeeze in this story that uh, popped up this week uh, about a couple of uh, people who were picked up uh, at a garden centre and apparently they've been going a tour round of garden centres stealing Christmas baubles and then reselling them on Marktplatz. I'm amazed that anyone wants them. <laughs> the stuff in the garden centres is so gaudy. It's unbelievable. Yeah. And the fact that you would get some kind of cottage industry going just selling baubles for Christmas trees. And I think these guys, apparently they had a whole uh, storeroom full of them. But it uh, seems bizarre to me. But Marktplatz itself, I've actually been trying to shift some old furniture. It's a very strange place, Marktplatz. It looks like a website from likes of the early days of the internet still. It's, it's, it's very basic and primitive. But uh, things do seem to move on there, so... Well, it's funny you should say that because that leads me into the op-hef of the week because one of the things that is moving on Marktplatz is indeed first edition <laughs> copies of a book, yes, which, a came, book. which came out this week. So um, after we dominated the world's press last week with our surprise election result, the Netherlands has done it again thanks to um, what we should call a publishing error. So um, British and American press have been rifling through a new book on the British royals called Endgame by Royal Report. Omid Scobie what kind of a name is that which may or may not have had cooperation from the disaffected royal pair Prince Harry and Meghan so after Meghan confided in confidence uh, to Oprah on live national TV that uh, she was upset because senior royals had speculated about the skin colour of her first child when she was pregnant. So everyone was desperate to know if the names of these senior royals would be revealed in this book. Nope. Not in any country of the world, except in the Netherlands. Turns out if you're really desperate to know, you can get a first edition and turn to page 128 and page 334. And if you really can't find one, watch RTL Boulevard on Wednesday and the presenter Jeroen van der Boom will tell you everything you need to know about these two names. Anyway, once Scobie realised that the names were appearing in the Dutch edition. All hell broke loose. The book was withdrawn. He told the world it must have been a translation error, although it's difficult to see how you translate names into 
names. I thought names yeah. were the same in translation, but apparently not. Shen, you and I both do uh, the odd bit of translation to pay the bills. I mean, have you ever made a mistake so bad that you actually inserted the two names that weren't in the original text that you were translating. Be quite surprising, sort of, sort of form of hallucinogenic translation. <laughs> oh, it's quite bizarre, isn't it? But uh, I guess the publishers had to they're scrambling to come up with an excuse basically to cover their backs because um, although I think it's unlikely the British royals would sue for libel uh, potentially they could and that's a very expensive business in the English courts so they had to come up with some kind of a vaguely plausible excuse and uh, a translation error is the best thing uh, they come up uh, Well I mean actually the publishers the Dutch publishers didn't um, specify what kind of error it was they just said an error it was uh, Mr Scobie who was on the Dutch oh, telly right, who okay. suggested it was a translation error the Dutch being the Dutch just sort of told the truth really said there was an error presumably there was an earlier edition or something and they they should have put some edits in or i mean who knows they probably just were scrambling to get it out in a rush they got a very fast uh, turnaround on the translation and no one actually bothered to check to make sure that the names of these royals uh, had not been included uh, but yeah very bizarre situation and i see now piers morgan has now also revealed the names um, in a clip that's on the internet uh, it's eight and a half minutes long but piers doesn't mention the names until about the last 30 seconds so you don't want to listen to eight minutes of piers morgan so just skip to the eight minutes point in that video if you're keen to know what the names are are we going to say who it is well i think we should leave a bit of suspense i think you should do a bit of work really it's not that hard we've told everyone where to find it they should do their own research as they like to say on the internet exactly like we do and then you can hallucinate your own names if you don't fancy (laughs) doing the research That brings us around to the uh, news of the week. And this week, the formation of a government kicked off with a spectacular own goal. And Kiet Wilders' preferred coalition is already coming apart at the seams. We try to stitch the week's events together, plus we bring you some tips on how to beat inflation, the latest sports news, and the latest on Amsterdam's ongoing campaign against the worst kind of gelukzoekers, British tourists. Yeah, chances, they really are. After the PFFA's success in last week's general election, Geert Wilders had a clear mandate to seek to form a coalition government. But it didn't get off to a great start as his first choice of Fekena, or Scout, a senator whose career spanned 12 years of total anonymity and 48 hours of notoriety, had to quit. After the downfall of Hom von Steen, the former Labour minister turned adjic-prop columnist Ronald Plasterk was invited to restart the talks. But it quickly became clear that neither of the two parties, Wilders needs to stand any chance of forming a government, that's the Fefe Day and NSC, weren't playing ball. So what happens now? Is there any path to a working coalition? And how long will a gigantic messy business take? Um, we woke up this morning, Shen, uh, I put on uh, VNL and they're very excited because it's been cold for the last few nights. Uh, everyone's uh, hoping that the waterways will freeze up and they can go out skating. But uh, the parties involved in the coalition talks aren't really getting their skates on, are they? No, and they're skating on thin ice if they do. They are indeed. <laughs> God, two puns the price of one. Do we think it's going to take even longer to form a coalition this time than last time? The record 299 days? What do you think? Yes or no? I think possibly not because I think it might actually collapse before that point. I'm wavering between either an incredibly long formation process or just it's going to fall apart and we have another election in six months' time. Or he gets to have a go with the minority government and yeah, see whatever. how long that Didn't... lasts. Yeah, we'll see. Anyway, I think um, something Paul mentioned to me before he went off to Southern Climbs uh, was uh, we didn't really mention last week uh, what the Fekena or the Scout actually does. Uh, so perhaps we should start by explaining that. I always think it's a bit of an overrated job and the media are terribly excited about who the Fekena is, even though basically they're kind of a glorified minute taker. But um, what in a couple of sentences is the job of the post-election Scout? It's just a sort of formal role for someone who goes around and says, who might you possibly work with? It's just yeah. the first sort of throw of the dice 
to see what coalitions might be possible and what might not, not even at the level of policy discussion, just really, do you like the look of him? Do you fancy her? Yeah. You say, yeah. Should, should my friend ask your friend out? That's really yeah, what you, it is, isn't it? <laughs> it is, isn't it? It's, do my people want to meet your people? Exactly. Kind of thing. Yeah. yeah, I was thinking it's, it's like the prologue to the co- real coalition talks, I was thinking, because like, they go around the parties, they say, do you want to be in the coalition? Uh, what sort of coalitions do you think are possible? Would you work with them? And so on. But I think because nothing else is happening at this stage, uh, the identity of the scout takes on this inordinate importance that it doesn't really merit. But anyway, the first choice of scout was a senator for the PFF, a 72-year-old uh, chap called uh, Chom von Strien. Absolutely nobody had heard of him. It turned out he'd been uh, hiding in a broom cupboard in the Senate for 12 years or something. But Wilders uh, wheeled him out as uh, his uh, candidate to go around the party offices and decide who wants to work with who. But yet within... Yeah. Two days. 24 hours. It started to unravel quite fast, didn't it? Uh, A fraud allegation came out of the cupboard, which he denies, we should say. But uh, from a previous job, there's some allegations about a company that he was involved in, which managed spin-offs from Utrecht University and UMC Utrecht. And there are allegations that um, the correct price was not charged, which he denies. He does deny, but there is an ongoing court case uh, as well, which is brought by Utrecht University uh, against uh, the company that was set up and Stream was a director. As you say, he's denied everything, but uh, Ian Wilders realised this was going to be uh, a big distraction from the actual talks, and so uh, Stream withdrew, and uh, yeah, there's, there's footage of him coming out of his uh, chateau in Limburg and uh, refusing to talk to reporters, and that's the last we've ever seen of him. Yeah, but it gave you a wonderful chance to say things like gone today, gone tomorrow. It was just a tremendous source of, uh, of, of, of puns and wordplay. And uh, yeah, when, when also Fun Strain at one point said uh, that uh, he thought that this had all been cooked up by the media to destroy his good name, which uh, sounded to me suspiciously like a complot theory oh, or conspiracy theory. <laughs> <laughs> And so on. So on Monday morning, he was gone. And now we have a chap called Ronald Plasterk. Tell me about why Plasterk is, a, is an unusual choice for a party for freedom uh, appointed by Wilders. Why is he a bit of a strange choice? Well, he's a strange choice, I suppose, because he was a former minister in the Labour Fefe uh, Day government uh, from 2012. So, yeah, Ronald Plasterk started his career as a microbiologist, as a scientist. Um, and uh, then when he was Minister for Education, he was a Minister for Home Affairs. He was also known as a Minister for Empty Boxes because uh, the accusation was he did absolutely nothing in the course of his career. He was I, one of I mean, the... in fairness, sometimes the measure of success is not messing everything up. I mean, in the context of the recent four governments, <laughs> if you didn't create a whole list of victims, then you were doing okay. Yeah, if you didn't set up a, a whole department at the tax office that systematically victimised people, then uh, yeah, then actually you come out of it with some credit or, or bully your staff or have yeah. strange allegations about you you were doing just great yeah so he's quite good then really yeah he's got a fairly unblemished record in the context of recent uh Ritter government appointees yes yeah, so he's a minister of the labor party but since he left um apart from he's mainly actually mainly been focusing on setting up a scientific company which he and his colleagues recently sold for i think 32 million euros so he doesn't need the money he's happy to just do this as kind of a spare time activity and uh the plastic is also does write a once a week column in the telegraph that's like builders house magazine isn't it pretty much yeah it's sort of the pay in-house journal so uh, 
Yeah, but Plastic, unsurprisingly, has swung quite violently to the right, although he does criticise uh, right-wing parties as well, but his, his real ire is saved for his old colleagues, who he says have become out of touch with the common people and their voter base. So Ronald Plastic, uh, left-wing minister turned uh, right-wing columnist, um, as is now the uh, man chosen by Geert Wilders to lead the coalition talks. And I guess uh, we've also seen, I think, a change in Geert Wilders' attitude uh, towards uh, this. We talked about the whole of Geert Milders uh, phenomenon and how he'd uh, sort of taken ostensibly a softer line during the campaign. I think since the election, he's become even more, well, actually, actually done something that I've never seen with Geert Wilders, which is actually started kind of procrastinating and uh, hedging his bets a bit and saying, well, maybe I'll be prime minister or maybe I won't. Although when he uh, he went down to Kijkdown, this is a, a place uh, near The Hague that's uh, getting a temporary asylum centre in a hotel and, and local people are not very happy about it. He went down there to have a little walkabout the other night. But he mm. did tell the cameras then that he was happy to be a prime minister for all of the Netherlands. So yeah. I, I suppose it just depends which Geert you believe, the, the one that was before the election or the one that's after the election. Yeah. Do you believe the Geert Wilders of the last two weeks or the one of the last 25 years? But as I say, he went and walked down Kijkdown. This is um, because uh, the Atlantic Hotel up in Kijkdown, where my parents stay when they're in The Hague as well. But, oh, really? Uh, <laughs> nice. In good company. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And they're, they're unwanted immigrants as well, are they? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, they, they just, you get all British sorts tourists. of turning up in there. This hotel had become a relief hotel for um, about, I think, 120 asylum seekers who otherwise were going to sleep out in the cold into Apple. So the Hague City Council, as an emergency measure, agreed to take these people in. The Fefe Day Council leader put up a tweet about it saying, how can they do this in the heart of our family bathing resort? Um, as if, you know, asylum seekers are not families. But uh, and also, you know, it's November. So it's out of season. There's loads of empty rooms. It's way out on the edge of town. It's not near any uh, bus routes. So there is a small row of shops uh, there, which uh, and a couple of pizza restaurants. Uh, they've sort of done up kite down recently. But yeah, it's it, it's a perfect place really to house asylum seekers where they're out of the way. And on I think of the the upper floors of the hotel as well. Omwoop Vest went in last week, and the people who were actually there, the the few paying guests who were there, hadn't even seen the asylum seekers. So they came in the back door. They went up in a, in an elevator, and they, they've been staying in their room. So even the people who are actually in the hotel haven't noticed them. But nevertheless, Kitvilles went out there, he walked about. I think the revealing thing here was that he wasn't trying to find some kind of reconciliation between the council and local residents and the accommodation service uh, who always get this landed with them because there aren't any proper arrangements to accommodate asylum seekers when to apple over spills. Wilders was basically saying, you know, I'm on the side of the local people here. So again, even in this softly, softly way, he was polarising the issue and saying this is local people against their council and against the whole asylum system. And it's a press event, so the press is invited for him to say a few things, and then he shares them instantly on X and on his all of his uh, channels. Yeah, it was a community meeting, and so Vilda said, I'm going to turn up at this community meeting. And he was criticised not just by people uh, who don't like Vilda's, but also by the people who are looking to form a government with him. Caroline's van der Plas of the Farmers' Party, Bebebe, she said, I wouldn't have done that. I think we should be concentrating on trying to actually get a government together. And she's the one who seems the most motivated of, uh, of all of them at the moment exactly. to try to make a uh, coalition. Exactly. So we had that. Um, we also had, uh, we should talk about uh, what the Fefe Day and the NSA parties are doing, because these two parties really are the key to the coalition talks, right? Yeah. And before the election, of course, Peter Omtzigt, who's head of the NSA, had said that he 
wouldn't be happy to work with a party with anti-constitutional viewpoints. And uh, Geert Wilders' position on Islam uh, contravenes Article 1 of the Dutch Constitution, freedom of religion. And and, uh, Peter Omtzigt has got skin in the game there as a Catholic. um, And he's been very clear on that. And on election night, he's made slightly different noises about taking responsibility. But don't forget that he's not a one-man party. He's got other MPs. There's more of a spread of opinion amongst his his MPs, uh, 20 of them. So um, it has to be something that they all agree. Some of them are more left-wing than he is on on certain issues, sort of socio-ethical kind of issues. So what's the latest on what he's saying uh, today? I don't think he's come out with anything today, but certainly on Tuesday when he met uh, Ronald Plastek, he he wrote a long and being Peter Homsley, he wrote a detailed letter outlining his objections. And when you actually go through it, he says, uh, well, we're drawing a hard line here on the Constitution. This is clearly something he's discussed with his party members. Remember, many of whom are people who've been drawn from things like the civil service, from the judiciary, people who've worked within the system, who know it, who value it, and uh, see that Geert Wilders is a real threat to it. I think it's been quite clear that um, I think uh, NSA's objections are going to be really hard for Wilders to get around. Omzik is also saying things like he wants basically Wilders to come out with a list of uh, reassurances or commitments that he will uphold not just the Dutch constitution, but also things like European treaties, European treaties on the climate. Now, Kate Wilders wants to withdraw from these European treaties, European treaties on human rights. Again, Wilders wants to pull out of the UN Human Rights Treaty. So it's very hard to see how you can reconcile these two positions. And Omsicht, I think, has said quite categorically now, and uh, I think he has the support of his party on this, that unless uh, Wilders uh, is going to actually uphold the rule of law recognise that the Netherlands has obligations under these treaties and international court judgments as well. The European agreement, for example, that led to the court judgment on nitrogen pollution, which is based on an agreement uh, within the European nations to protect uh, nature conservation areas. Now, again, Wilders just wants to basically ignore all this, but obviously saying, no, 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 this is an international agreement. We've signed up to it. We have to honour it. So that's a real sticking point. And Wilders has responded by saying, well, I don't know why you want to go into the detail of the policies now. That's for a later phase. But Omsicht is, is setting out his position quite clearly, isn't he? And what about yeah. um, Yeshilgus? So Yeshilgus was the first one to open the door to Wilders. Some people blame her for his success in the fact that she made mm-hmm. him acceptable by uh, saying that she wouldn't exclude him as other governments have done. And then on election night, she said, I don't see myself under a government uh, headed by Geert Wilders. I don't see him finding a majority. And then a couple of days later, she was saying, we're not going to be in government with him. We're prepared to do a kind of confidence and supply agreement. We're going to we can support some of his policies from outside. What's the latest? Did she convince her party of this? No, they had a meeting in Utrecht uh, and uh, she, she, she explained to her party uh, rank and file you know, why they made this decision not to go into cabinet and crucially, of course, not to provide ministers, which is really important because uh, the Fifa Day is the only party in this potential coalition that's got any experience of governing in The Hague at national level. So if they're not providing ministers of government, then that means it's going to be you know, a, a very untested cabinet, which um, calls into question whether or not it will actually hold together. She argued that um, the voters have uh, said that they want to change, they want a different kind of government. Remember, the Fifa Day lost 10 seats in the election. The four coalition parties together lost uh, nearly half of their 79 seats. No, more than half, actually, of their 79 seats. So her feeling was that it wasn't appropriate uh, for the Fifa Day to be a part of the government again. A lot of commentators said this is a tactical move and they may come back into the reckoning later on at some point. 
uh, if Wilders is struggling to put a cabinet together and at that point of course they can make much harder demands on Kit Wilders. I think that's possibly true and I think there was certainly a lot of noises in the meeting in Utrecht from people uh, on the right of the Fefe Day party who's, uh, who argued that okay the voters have weren't as enthusiastic as they were during Mark Rutter's time but they still have 24 seats, they're still in a pivotal position that gives them a legitimate right to, uh, to have a place in the coalition talks and that uh, they would rather actually take this opportunity to have uh, a right wing, she's called it a centre right coalition but I think frankly when you look at the lineup, it's a right wing coalition and uh, they feel like the, the Fefe Day is missing an opportunity to move the playing field to the right uh, if she doesn't uh, go into government and does a confidence deal. Uh, yes, because argument is they're still, they're still happy to prop up a Wilders-led government. They're still happy to provide them with the votes, just not with the uh, expertise. But I think there's also a real split in the Fefe Day, which is you know a, still quite a broad party from the centre to the right. And there are people within the Fefe Day. I saw a petition was launched by a Fefe Day councillor, Eric Favay, today saying, no, get, stay out of government with the Fefe because they discriminate against people. And that's uh, picked up, OK, 100 signatures, but uh, in its early days. But certainly, and there, you have people in the Fefe Day like E. van der Burg, who was the minister very soft very soft uh, pretty yeah pretty soft really. i wouldn't call him left wing but no, certainly a, no, a, a center a center yeah. right politician rather than right wing politician who tried to get this spreading law together and actually stirred up this whole row within the party that ultimately i think led to mark ritter bringing down the cabinet about uh, whether local councils should be told if they don't uh, voluntarily agree to find accommodation for asylum seekers so that row i think is going on and has been going on behind the scenes and is coming more there's, and more to there's, the fore. A, there's another point of view that says well if this government is a poison chalice, then maybe you're better out of it. You keep your dignity, yeah. you're ready for the next one. That's exactly. possibly a tactical position as well to take. Definitely. Especially if you see what's happening with Omtzigt uh, not enthusiastically adopting a matchup with Wilders. Which makes no sense if you look at his his history of scrutinising the law and being upright and his reputation it makes no sense to to compromise on any of that for him. No, definitely. And Peter Omzicht has, a, I think, has said as well that he's put out the option of what he calls an extra parliamentary government, which is a government where the ministers aren't picked from the political parties, but are picked on the basis of their expertise. And I think Omzicht would quite like that. One of the things that he wants in reforming the political system is he wants Parliament to be more of a scrutinising body to take that role back of holding ministers to account, rather than having what you have now, which is the the, the parties that go into government put together this very long detailed coalition agreement and then just basically whack it through Parliament without very much uh, scrutiny and Omzik says that's been a big part of the problem that's why you had things like Tuslach and Affair because legislation wasn't properly uh, examined when it came up before for MPs. And maybe also the argument about nitrogen and whether it's 2030 or 2035 and whether yeah. this is holy and all of this was because it was in this 200 page long coalition agreement and yeah. there's been criticism that these coalition agreements have been getting longer and longer and longer when actually that stops your scope for flexibility in responding to events actually and yeah. frankly if you're a parliamentary democracy everything should be tested within parliament anyway so he, he's got a point there and also the point about having experts as ministers is not a terrible point that the ministers that have done quite well on health and education in the last uh, government have both been from the field of expertise they understand their field they have managed to come through without any huge scandals which is a result in itself <laughs> yeah it's a rare thing these days yeah I think that would be a hard 
hard one to sell to the voters, though. I think um, Peter Omzecht is quite a technocrat. I think he likes government systems, but I think it is, it's hard to get back to the people uh, and explain why you're going to have this much more, almost go back to the boring days of Dutch government, right, before Kit Wilders came along. Boring days would be great. I'm up for some boredom, but I wonder how much uh, the ordinary voter who's kind of impatient to see things change and change quickly uh, would go for that. But yeah, but that's, that's where we are. You should mention as well, I mean, there is on the maths an alternative possible coalition which would be led by Franz Timmermans. And a sort of centre-right, left mishmash. Yeah, a coalition across the centre where Timmermans, Pifidi Aachun links, who were the second biggest party in the election uh, would be the biggest party, but then the Feifei Day have almost as many seats. And when you combine Feifei Day and NSA, it would actually be a party that's led by the left but has a majority of right-wing voters, and then they'd have to bring in Dezis and Zestu or somebody as well. But that seems to be a non-starter for the time being, right? Yeah, although Timmermans said, well, we're not going to try and go behind the scenes and do something sneaky right now. We're just going to wait our turn. So he didn't exclude it completely. But obviously, it's not the most logical coalition to start off with and see what you can form. So in some yeah. ways, he, he acted quite democratically in, in just saying, well, Wilders was largest party, so he gets a go and we'll see what happens. All through this election, he's been reaching out to other parties. It's been very interesting. No one's really been attacking Wilders in this election because you could quite easily attack his manifesto as being fantasy fiction. There's no proper costing. It doesn't make any sense. Um, it's just a sort of list of things. It's half the length of everyone else's. It wasn't properly costed by the CPB. Mm. No one really pulled this out of the closet to fire at him. And Timmermans also didn't because Timmermans was trying to build potential partnerships with other people with the knowledge, I guess, that that any left wing or government with a left wing element would have to be patched together with other elements. So we'd have to show that you could compromise. But I don't know how well that worked in the context of combative debates, really. Yeah, it's a long game, isn't it, to Dutch government formation? And this is the very early stages and everyone's being very cautious and uh, being quite polite to each other at the moment. It may get hard as time goes on. I think that particular combination, I think, is going to be really hard for Yeshilgers to sell back to the Feifei Day. I mean, given that they are already divided over whether they're going to government with Wilders, who they're much more naturally sympathetic towards. I mean, the idea of going to government with Timmermans, we're a long way from that stage, but it may yet come if all the options with their builders are completely off the table. Uh, but I think that, that, that we're looking months ahead there. So, yeah, I guess that comes around to sort of wrap up by sort of saying how long is this going to take? And uh, is, is there any realistic prospect of a government uh, coming into fruition or are we going to have another election? I mean, I don't think anyone's dashing to get to the polls again for another election. And I don't know that that's what the country needs. I don't think anyone thinks that really, because there are some really pressing problems like housing for instance, which is the issue that sits behind all of this debate about immigration is really people are only mentioning immigration in the second sentence. The first sentence is my son can't get a house. My girlfriend, his girlfriend's still living at home. We're, mm. the, we've got a huge problem. And then they see immigrants coming in and getting houses. But the first yeah. sentence and the first problem is housing. Yeah, absolutely. And that I thought was really interesting. In the course of the campaign, it turned more and more towards immigration. I think early in the campaign, it wasn't particularly focused on immigration. But Geert Wilders took this tack and uh, it really burst forth in the SBS 6 debate a week before the election, where basically every 
discussion that to every debate they had, he brought it back to immigration. So there was we had a discussion on housing. He said, oh, well, it's because the immigrants are taking all the houses. You had a discussion on health care. It was, oh, because the immigrants are blocking all the beds. It's very superficial. And when you dig into it, it doesn't make any sense. But as you say, the real issues kind of got obscured. And all the parties went with builders on this. They all kind of said, yes, migration is a problem we have to do. We have an asylum problem. We have to deal with it. And everything else got obscured. But as you say, you're right, as you rightly say, the real thing is, you know, people just cannot find a house there's not enough social housing the house prices for on the property markets have gone crazy house prices are insane and because the market is kind of controlled by estate agents who produce their own sets of figures who find ways to manipulate what's going on and present a good picture the house prices have gone up by the most in europe over the pandemic and they have not corrected and the gap between people's salaries their disposable income and house prices has got ever larger more than any other country in europe and we have europe's largest debt and people People keep acting as though the solution is to help people borrow more. No, it's a no. fundamental reform of the housing market and remove the stimulus for house buying and remove the stimulus for investing because this is just bumping prices and your prices are out of control. It's the only logical thing to do, but voters don't like the sound of it and people have got mortgages and that sounds tough, yeah. but it, it really is a bitter pill, but the one that needs to be swallowed to try to get a grip on the housing market as well as building houses and making planning easier build get them built yeah build more houses and cut mortgage tax relief and build more affordable social houses as well and you might need some migrants you might need some labor migrants you might need some migrant builders yes yes you actually need people to build the houses and they will have to come from elsewhere there we are that's our platform if you appreciate our efforts to try and untangle the Dutch government formation talks and keep you up to date uh, through this long, torturous process, and you'd like us uh, to just keep feeding us strop waffles so we can keep bringing you the news, please consider becoming a sponsor of the podcast on Patreon. All our new patrons uh, get a shout-out on the podcast and the chance to ask us a question. We have uh, four tiers of membership, uh, starting at uh, the princely sum of one euro. They all bring the same benefits. Uh, you're free to donate as much as you wish to or are able to give us. Uh, we appreciate all donations for very much. Although we should say as well, with the OPEF of the Year awards looming in a couple of weeks, if you are a Hachtachordel patron, you will get an extra vote in that. So think about that. This week, uh, we've uh, welcomed two new patrons, uh, Bilal, Mahfouz and Turin. Uh, so thank you very much to both of you for uh, your generous support for this podcast. We appreciate it very much. We did have some questions, but I'm going to hold them over till Paul gets back because I know how much he enjoys answering them. Uh, and uh, in the meantime, to say thank you very much again to everyone who sponsors podcasts and anyone who wants to become a patron you can sign up at www.patreon.com that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash dutchnewsnl Some other news now, uh, starting with the court ruling that has forced the government to scrap restrictions on work for asylum seekers. The Council of State said the law that limits people whose claims are in the system, working more than 24 weeks a year, was incompatible with European guidelines that require member states to give asylum seekers the chance to work. And the country's highest administrative court upheld a decision by judges in Arnhem earlier this year that the restriction was unlawful after the government had won an earlier appeal. Martin van Panhaus, director of the Hardeweg-based recruitment agency that brought the case, said it was a historic decision and between 40 and 50 people on his books would benefit immediately. And the rest of the country, because we need the Labour, don't we? But the the government has said that uh, it will implement the decision straight away. Yes, having fought this case uh, for uh, about nine months, so they now basically said that, uh, yeah, okay, fair enough, we lost, uh, we'll live with the result. Uh, Social Affairs Minister Karine van Genep said the rulings made it clear that refugees who've been working for longer than six months should not be refused a work permit. They contribute to 
our society and learn the language more quickly, she said, uh, in a Damascene conversion. And employers also know what the situation is if they have an asylum seeker on their books. So good for the companies that uh, want to recruit cheaper uh, labour. The rule was originally brought in because the government was worried that asylum seekers who worked for six months uh, then become eligible for unemployment insurance. And that could mean, first of all, that means they get a benefit, which uh, the Fefede really don't like. And also it could complicate things if they were later refused refugee status. But the Council of State rejected that argument and ordered the government to stop enforcing the rule. The Employment Insurance Agency, UFEFE, said it would extend all temporary work permits for asylum seekers with immediate effect, and despite the stereotypes of lazy refugees scrounging on benefits, that will affect several thousand people. So who actually uh, brought the case? A refugee called Elvis, who fled from Nigeria with his girlfriend and found a job in a slaughterhouse in Hardevag. Actually, a slaughterhouse where they slaughtered ducks, I see. So Is that legal? Is there, Do we not have bird flu? Uh, I don't know, but you can eat a duck breast, can't you? So it has to come from somewhere. Anyway, uh, he found this job through a local agency called M People. Uh, this is a detail I love about the story that M People recruited Elvis. So Yeah, it's, it's wonderful. <laughs> Yeah, to slaughter some ducks. Beautiful harmony. Yeah. Uh, M people specialise in finding work for refugees and they say the 24-week limit was a real problem because companies didn't want to take on asylum seekers, train them up, and then just as they're actually getting proficient, they have to lay them off because they've hit the limit. Martin van Panhaus, who, as well as being a director of the Refugee Employment Agency, is also a local councillor for the Fefe Day. So hmm. there we are again. He, until recently, he gave up uh, earlier this year. He said asylum seekers are a huge untapped workforce, but there are currently 52 thousand people living in refugee shelters including 16,000 who've been given permission to stay in the country and with it the right to work. And we've got lots of houses that need building as well. Obviously there are because those 16,000 people should actually be moving into houses but there's nowhere for them to go and of course that causes another row because people say asylum seekers are getting priority which actually they're not these days. Councils aren't obliged to get priority and most don't. Anyway, in less controversial news, um, a few of the emails I've been opening this week from the CBS, that's the Dutch Statistics Office, are about inflation. And I I did actually study statistics at A-level, so I'm not completely stupid about figures. But the Dutch inflation figures this year are like fantasy fiction because they changed the measures halfway through the year. So one minute, the new inflation rate is showing negative. And then the next, the real food inflation that we're seeing every time we go to the supermarket every day is 7.3%. Anyway, that was the news this week you are going to pay 107 euros 30 for a basket of shopping this year that would have cost you 100 euros last year that's 7.3 percent inflation that's the effect of that obviously it depends on what you buy i mean some things have been coming down in price i've noticed in the supermarket milk's cheaper pasta's cheaper uh, peanut butter's an awful lot cheaper we noticed so cheese is a bit cheaper uh, so basically the dutch diet is, is becoming affordable again but if you want actually to have any actual flavor in your food that's going to cost you that's right uh, so is this when we weigh it all up uh, good news or bad news uh, that uh, these inflation numbers uh, according to the cbs this is good news so food inflation year on year was 10 percent in september 8.7 percent in october so food as you say is getting a bit less pricey in theory but still if you compare it to quote unquote normal inflation which is minus 0.4 percent without energy prices and 1.6 percent with energy prices you can see why thousands of people are living in food poverty and uh, why albert hein checks every single thing in your basket so have we got 
got any tips for how to manage this and fight back against inflation other than just to live off a diet of cheese and pasta? I was more thinking of uh, why, how you fight against Albert Hein, which checks your oh. supermarket uh, okay, basket right. uh, yeah. every day. Um, I think that um, uh, the best way to do this, actually, I mean, this is the important stuff, right, Gordon? Yeah. Uh, readers need to know this. You take two baskets, you transfer your shopping from one basket <laughs> to the other basket. You don't pack your bag and then have them check everything in it, throw it on the floor, crush all your biscuits. <laughs> And if they're a bit annoying to you, then you, you forget to clean up your uh, baskets uh, when you mm. walk out. And if they're just nice and normal, then you clean up and, and go Okay. in right. a normal way. A- any tips from The Hague? Do, do people not accuse you of stealing every time you go to the supermarket there? Is it just me? My tip for this is just don't shop in supermarkets that are overpriced where they treat you as a criminal. You know, I go to a different supermarket chain. The regular listeners might know which one it is. Uh, I get checked about once a month, maybe, and their prices are lower and they do better store baffles. So that's my tip. Some quick sports news now, and there's been a total turnaround in fortunes for the two Dutch teams in the UEFA Champions League. Two matches ago, Feyenoord were in pole position in their group, but on Tuesday they suffered a calamitous loss at home to Atletico Madrid. They managed two own goals, even more than Geert Wilders this week, uh, <laughs> as they lost 3-1 to uh, the Spanish team. And head coach Arna Slot admitted afterwards the Spanish side had been stronger and more comfortable on the ball. And that means Feyenoord will now finish third in their group and drop down to the Europa League after Christmas. So their final match in Glasgow against Celtic, which, by the way, is a replay of the 1970 European Cup final, is a dead rubber. Uh, Not literally a replay, obviously it's not the same players. A dead rubber? That doesn't sound very nice. That sounds quite rude. (laughs) They say that in tennis. If if you've got a leftover match in the the Davis Cup, it's called a dead rubber. Whatever. Anyway, we'll move on. PSV Eindhoven. Uh, They didn't win any of their three matches, but they hauled themselves back into contention by beating Lons in the previous round. And on Wednesday, they managed a sensational comeback against Sevilla in Spain. The home team were 2-0 up after an hour, but everything turned when former Ajax midfielder Lucas Ocampos was sent off for picking up two yellow cards in the space of four minutes. And PSV struck back straight away through Ismail Saibiri. Yorba Fertesen forced an own goal with 10 minutes left and in injury time Ricardo Pepe slammed in the header to seal the win. And with Arsenal beating Lance 6-0 in the other game, PSV are guaranteed to qualify in second place. And last night in the Europa League, Ajax uh, went out. They lost 4-3 uh, to Marseille in France, but as at Alkmaar have a slither of a chance in the Conference League, uh, they'll need to beat Legia Warsaw in their last game in Poland. Aren't women playing some football this week, Gordon? Aren't the English women playing the Dutch? Uh, possibly, yes. <laughs> Why does this not make your news? I'm not interested in all this. I've I've been covering the Ajax women very um, religiously because they've been doing much better than the Ajax men's team. But I must say, uh, I hadn't... uh... You hadn't clocked it was all over the NOS this morning. Uh Uh-huh. Anyway, well, we uh, apparently we, we don't want to talk about the women. We have to we have to congratulate Max Verstappen. The the script is telling me. Yeah, we have to congratulate Max Verstappen. Yeah, England against the Netherlands is tonight. They haven't played yet, so but it is it is a crucial match uh, because uh, yeah, the Dutch have got to. I'm I'm, I'm trying to live this now. <laughs> the Dutch are playing their own coach. The Dutch coach. There's a Dutch coach for England, isn't there? She's she yeah, said the, the, that she's not been contacting any of her friends on the Dutch team in order to keep a bit of distance. Well, to try, try and stay neutral, yeah. She's become like a Fakena in, in the coalition talks, hasn't she? Trying try, try to stay <laughs> stay out of things. Yeah. Well, as long as England wins, it's fine. Well, 
Yeah. Anyway, tell me about Max Verstappen. You don't Max Verstappen, yeah. Very, yeah, very fast racing driver who's been responsible for, even by Formula One standards, uh, one of the most tedious seasons uh, in history, mainly because he won 19 out of the 22 races, which is more than any other driver's managed. He smashed every record in the book uh, this uh, year, actually, but the Formula One season is now over. He's uh, passed uh, Alain Prost and Ayrton Senna and Sebastian Vettel on the list of all-time race wins. And uh, yeah, his Red Bull team won two of the other races. So Verstappen won his third world title. Uh, so and he stands head and shoulders above the rest of the Formula One field. So we should give him his due. And it looks as if very much as if he's going to win the title again next year for a fourth successive season. Do we have a minister for sport? Do we need a minister for sport? It's wrapped up in the culture and education ministry, I think. Favor yes. We'll, we'll let we'll let him, we'll let him carry on in his car then. Paul on day to Vegas Cup and sport. Let's talk about British tourists, uh, like your parents who come and trash, trash the beautiful <laughs> Dutch seaside. So yeah. the, the other story that I specialise in is uh, reporting from the heart of darkness, which is my pet name for Amsterdam's red light district, where I seem to have to go off cycling late at night uh, a couple of times a month. Um, not for personal use. Uh, after some uh, suggestions that uh, the number of flights from traditional aeroplane carriers between Britain and Amsterdam has gone down, hmm. sparking enthusiasm and glee because British tourists are supposed to be amongst the worst. The mayor, Femke Halsema, has now admitted that actually a campaign to make nuisance tourists stay away may or may not have succeeded so well because they've done some research. Tourists apparently don't know that they're not supposed to drink alcohol or smoke weed on the street. They're not supposed to sleep in their cars and they're not supposed to urinate in public. This is despite this doom laden campaign telling nuisance tourists to stay away in March. Party tourists still see Amsterdam as the city where anything goes. And this remains a strong motivation to visit. She and the economic affairs chief Sofiane Embarki told the city council in a briefing. Uh, by the way, since they're increasing tourist tax next year because the city finances are in a right old state and half the canal walls are falling in, the news about not getting rid of so many nuisance tourists it isn't quite as bad as it sounds. So what are they going to do now that that attack has failed uh, to try and uh, deter the nuisance tourists? Funny you should ask. They're starting a new campaign and this is supposed to be a more positive campaign. So the, the stay away campaign was criticised internally for being a bit doer and negative and black and yeah. white and doom laden. And basically suggesting that all British tourists are criminals. Yeah. Although the research suggests actually that Dutch <laughs> young men between 18 and 34 are just as bad as British mm. young men. And we do notice in football hooligan a similar parallel, except yeah. the Dutch hooligans kill each other. Yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, new campaign. They're more professional, you see. <laughs> new campaign is um, actually, funnily enough, this new campaign, you have to watch it. Did you watch it? I shared it with you I haven't earlier. watched it. You no, probably haven't had the, the, the privilege of watching it yet. What's it called? Renew Your View. And it actually seems to me a bit like a party political broadcast aimed at starting war with Kirit Wilders and Party for Freedom supporters. <laughs> because this new advert features all kinds of Amsterdamers doing interesting things. Amsterdamers of all kinds of diversities, colours, shapes, sizes. Mm. multi-ethnicity uh, <laughs> it makes it perfectly clear why this city voted Groenlinks and VVD and Dezes to top in the election and the PVV hardly got a look in so mm. um, I think that actually the better way to see this advert is uh, what we would call in Dutch a, a dicker middle finger to the leading party in The Hague. Possibly, possibly. I think part of the, uh, a lot of the um, perception of uh, the Netherlands as being this uh, great liberal paradise, which it isn't at all but among foreigners, is because they never get outside of uh, the, 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 the canal belt in Amsterdam. 
and uh, it is almost a, a different place uh, from the provinces. But anyway, uh, is this going to stop nuisance tourism? And uh, yeah, while we're at it, uh, what about uh, this whole plan to build an erotic centre on the edge of town? Yeah, we're supposed to be hearing more about this. Uh, so Amsterdam Council, part of its coalition agreement, has got a plan to close half of the prostitution windows in the red light district and move them to a purpose-built centre in Amsterdam, either in the north or south. And the mayor is supposed to be announcing whether they've chosen a location sometime in December. Unsurprisingly, not many people in the north or south of Amsterdam seem very keen on the uh, proposed locations. (laughs) And um, given the general difficulties in building at the moment, I'm curious to see what the market research they've been doing has thrown up and whether anyone has said that they would be interested in building this thing on city land. I mean, I I suspect that the the red light district uh, has more of an impact on attracting tourists than an advertising campaign. So what they do with this could have more impact on whether you have more or fewer tourists. Uh, there are going to be more testy uh, town hall meetings with Franka Halsma, I think. Uh, we've seen a few of those already, uh, where people standing up and uh, accusing her of sort of redirecting the dregs of, uh, the, of the world uh, to the north of Amsterdam. Yeah. I, actually, Gordon, what, what would the PVV do about this? Let's turn to a party that can solve things and win votes. Yeah, the PVV didn't mention tourism specifically in their manifesto, but uh, there was a line, and that although reading the PVV manifesto can be a challenging exercise sometimes, uh, you, every time I look at it, I turn up another nugget, and one nugget that they uh, is in there is that uh, they want to, to crack down on uh, what they call uh, street thugs, and uh, they would even actually propose, uh, Kate Builders proposes to send in the army to clear them out if uh, if they don't shift. So I can see that, uh, I think that's the next uh, step actually send the troops in to, in to, to, to clear the tourists out of the, out of the coffee shops beautiful yeah. Yeah. will they still pay tourist tax though after you've taken the tourist tax obviously yeah they'll pay the tourist tax on top of their fines and then deport them and then, and then they'll deport them yeah exactly Perfect. yeah and on that uh, cheery note, uh, that's all we have for you this week. Uh, this podcast is a production of Dutch News, which can be found online at dutchnews.nl. We'll include links to everything we've talked about today in the liner notes. And you can get in touch with us by email at podcast at dutchnews.nl. If you'd like to help out and support us, please subscribe to the podcast, leave us a rating, and think about uh, backing us on Patreon at patreon.com slash dutchnewsnl. You'll earn yourself a shout-out on the podcast, uh, the chance to ask us a question, and our fond thoughts. My thanks to Shanae Bostes, uh, no thanks at all to Paul Peters. I'm Gordon Darach, and uh, Paul and I will be back next week. Jobber for Tennis, Jobber for Tessen, he's Belgian, that's why I can't pronounce his name.